Hello, everyone, and welcome to BrainX Talks. I am your host, Ashish Khanna. BrainX Talks is our attempt to engage in conversations with leading figures and their work at the crossroads of machine learning and healthcare. I, Ashish Khanna, serve as the Associate Professor and Vice Chair for Research and Director for Perioperative Outcomes and Informatics at the Department of Anesthesiology at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I also work as an intensivist and anesthesiologist, but spend most of my time doing research, education, and innovation centered around perioperative and critical care outcomes. I am one of the founding members of BrainX, and today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Azra Behorak, who is the Senior Associate Dean for Research at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Welcome, Azra. Thank you, Ashish. So great to be with you. (laughs) All right, Azra. So I'm going to start with trying to uh, do justice to your bio. And um, uh, it's going to be a tough little ask of me, but uh, but here we go. So just so our listeners know who who we're talking to, Dr. Behorak is the R. Glenn Davis Professor of Medicine, surgery, anesthesiology, and physiology, and functional genomics, and the lab director of the Precision and Intelligent Systems in Medicine Research Partnership, or PRISMA, and co-director of the Intelligent Critical Care Center, IC3, which is a multidisciplinary center focused on providing sustainable support and leadership for transformative medical AI research, education, and clinical applications to advance patients' health in critical and acute care medicine. Wow, I said all of that um, uh, without <clears throat> t- without uh, taking another breath, but hey, we, we did it. So, um, uh, Azra, the, the, obviously, th- this is phenomenal. Um, as I read through the rest of your bio, I know that you sp- started your medical career um, um, as a medical student in the University of Sarajevo in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then you've evolved now to be a dean at, at University of Florida. And then, you know, all of your work that is really bringing AI to the fore in the diagnosis, monitoring, and treatment of a critically ill patients, something that both you and I do. And then all of your work using a very personalized clinical profile using digital data. I also uh, do know of, and I'm going to tell my uh, listeners here, that you've been featured on NBC Nightly News and NPR, and then that uh, we know uh, of your prowess as a, a clinician scientist, and then that you are a PI for multiple NIH-funded programs, including the uh, most important, uh, and maybe something that we'll talk about today, is a patient-focused chorus for equitable AI, which is which has been in the news and 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 clearly is is sort of the pinnacle of all of your achievements and and we're looking forward to what chorus ai will do which is to develop a much needed patient data set for ai research in critical care along with the workforce training events and setting standards so um it's a great great little foundation um i'm going to just jump right into this by by asking you you know obviously there, there, there was you, the, the medical student, 
and there's you, uh, the the dean uh, for 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 research here at University of Florida, and all of the work you've done. Um, can you talk to us about this uh, amazing journey and and um, how did you get into exploring AI and machine learning in critical care and nephrology? Well, Ashish, thank you so much for your words. Like they made me feel tired. Complain, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always tired. That's what my friends are. You always, I really am tired. I get tired, but I get, I wake up next day and I'm really happy. I think I'm a happy person in general. Well, isn't that a blessing? You know, when you say that, like, isn't that's just um, I, I, I keep telling uh, people my life is a blessing that came in the shape of the series of unfortunate events you know uh and you know if you just take each one of these events and without looking at the big picture you were like oh my god but you know look where i am so yes i was born in ex-yugoslavia when it was still one country and uh, you know in a very small town in northern part of bosnia that probably nobody ever heard of until the war and uh, you know i was i had a very you know small small life if you think about you know geographically but always big in my head i think i'm the same person and i then went to medical school in the university of sarajevo after i finished i moved to my town interestingly my hometown was a home for the balkan nephropathy that is a real disease i don't know whether you heard ever about that but yes of- yeah interesting yeah. okay yeah. And then, you know, I, you know, and, you know, that was my first exposure to nephrology. You know, I was, my first research was in Balkan nephropathy. And, um, and then, you know, uh, through that, um, just before the war, I was an intern. I just finished my medical school. And then um, when the war started, I escaped as a war refugee to Turkey. And then, you know, that kind of the journey started, right? And that's, that was one big first major event in my life. I mean, you know, I left Bosnia uh, like uh, on feet, you know, across the bridge. I ran across the bridge with my parents. I only had like a one small bag and my diploma was in it. And I had like a little bit of money sewn in the coat. So, you know, it was hidden. We, you know, we went from there through Slovenia to Turkey and then in Turkey, you know, after I learned Turkish on, during the summer, of course, I didn't know Turkish. I didn't know English. I, I was I already know very good English. That was maybe, uh, you know, thank you to my mom who insisted that we start learning English very early. That was very unusual in um, at that time in Yugoslavia. And um, and then, you know, after I learned a little bit of Turkish, and work some kind of odd jobs, like in a in a little clinic, and so on. I decided I want to do residency, and that's another event in my life that somebody's kindness of a human being really helped me. And uh, you know, I was staying in a small town, relatively small town in Turkey, and then I two hours away from Istanbul, and I took a bus and walked. You know, this is so naive if you think about this to the big. A university hospital called Marmara University that is a college it's a university that does education in English uh, and I walked in the clinic and I was looking for internal medicine because I want to be internal, internal medicine specialist and I walked to the clinic of the chair of internal medicine I just walked in I mean can you believe that like can you even think that's possible like this was 1992 
And I walked, I knocked on her door, and I said, I'm Azra Bihorak. I'm a I'm like, you know, physician from Bosnia. I started my you know, training in Bosnia. I was in nephrology, and I want, to, I want to do residency. I'm a refugee. And you know what? She said, okay, wait for me and come to my office after my clinic. Like Emela Kol, she was a chair of internal medicine, very famous nephrologist in Turkey. And, you know, she was kind and supportive and she allowed me to take a test and she admitted me to do residency. Wow. Marmara, that, you know, with small caveat in Turkey, if you are a foreigner, you can do residency, but you cannot get paid. So, you know, he said, well, how? and then, so I initially, you know, they find me a room, uh, the, uh, the Marmara University Hospital was connected to the nursing home. So they had a little room for me, so I would stay in that nursing home room, and then I would be like their doctor in the night, like for the older people. I would go change their dressing and take care of them. So that was the beginning of my residency. My family then moved all of them to Istanbul, and we lived three families together, my parents, me, with my son. Uh, I was a single parent. And then my sister and her husband, like three families in one apartment. And they all worked, so I could finish my residency, you know. That was a big sacrifice for my family, and I finished my residency. I become a fellow in nephrology, and then I, you know, applied for a fellowship in a nephrology, International Society of Nephrology, and uh, I was able to get it. And I came to Gainesville. Meanwhile, you know, I did all of my training, you know, tests, you know, how that go for foreign medical graduates, passed them while I was actually in Turkey. And I found myself in Gainesville in 19, September 15, 1999. I came to University of Florida and I loved Gainesville. Like the first landing, I still remember like very vividly coming to America. Like, you know, I was born in Yugoslavia. I never, you know, I would never ever dream that I would ever visit America. Like that's kind of, it was, it was a different world. And I came to Atlanta with my daughter who was four years old. I ha- I was, um, you know, I I didn't know to, how to drive the car. I didn't have a driving license. I arrived in Gainesville and uh, with family who helped me. And uh, I loved the green. Everything was green. Everything was gorgeous. It was like being in the forest. It was warm and humid, and I loved it. <laughs> a lot of people don't like that, but I love. And, you know, University of Florida was very, you know, welcoming place, warm place, in this growth phase, you know, I quickly, um, you know, went from research fellow, I applied to be a clinical fellow in nephrology and then went to become resident internal medicine, went backwards after I finished my nephrology. I finished internal medicine, then I was done, right? I was board certified now in internal medicine, nephrology, but I didn't have a job. Okay. And you know, here's another unfortunate event, right? Like, if you think about this, like, and, you know, when I came to Gainesville, I was going to work with one mentor mm-hmm. and he never came to Gainesville. So I came to Gainesville and I couldn't do what I wanted. Hmm. So they just said, well, they didn't know what to do with me. So they put me with another faculty in a very basic science and I did not like it. Like, I killed many cell cultures and I said, I am not a cell culture person. Please, I need to do something else. I can't do this. Because I was always doing clinical research, you know, even in Turkey. That was always something I've done, you know. And uh, I started doing research when I was 13 years old. My first competition was as a 13 years old high school student. 
And, you know, Yugoslavia had competition in um, science uh, for, it was a national and you were supposed to do a research project. So every year of my high school, I did a different research project. It was like, you write a grant, you build a proposal. And I started with archaeology, moved to the epidemiology study on uh, lipid metabolism. And then I do chromatography in the last. <laughs> and, you know, I went to Sarajevo for that, to done, do liquid chromatography on some plant extracts that I was interested in. And in Turkey, and I continue to do research ashish, like, you know, it was so, inspired. for me, it was, you know, interesting how in Turkey I was designing my own study. I was writing a grant. I was finding a money. I was the clinical coordinators. I recruit my patients. I draw their blood, right? I did everything. I do the questionnaires. I analyze the data. And I really did a lot of research. And it was with very little money, you know. I, and that was another blessing, learning that you can do really interesting things even with very little resources. And I think that scarcity of resources pushed me to always operate on the margin of possible and be very innovative and willing to, you know, don't necessarily demand, you know, straight path forward. And um, but but you've taken you've taken quite the jump from like the the bench research, the cell yeah. cultures to to AI. So yeah. th that when did that transformation happen? Not yet. Like you know, you guys, it, it's it wasn't. In, it's an interesting transition, right? So I was doing a lot of clinical research in Turkey, uh, some on echocardiography, a lot of data, a lot of always classic statistics. That was my thing, right? I was right. always mathematical, uh, very more epidemiology, clinical research in outcome research focused in the, and then translational. And, you know, when I finished my re uh, fellowship and residence in medicine, I decided that, you know, you know, I was doing a lot of research in peritoneal dialysis, PD. That was a big thing in Turkey and not in America. You wouldn't believe that nobody was doing PD when I came to, and now it's a big thing here, right? But nobody was doing it when I came to Gainesville. There was no expertise for that. I was bigger expert than anyone there. So I quickly moved to AKI, right? That kind of perplexed me as a fellow, you know, in nephrology. And just, I did not feel that nephrologists were really there on time. And as an intensity, you would appreciate that. Like you are not there when so it's not a disease. The primary disease is not nephrology in a in ICU. And I decided to do intensive care ICU training, critical care, and I did it with anesthesiology department through anesthesia in a surgical ICU. That was another blessing, and that's how I got engaged. And my first faculty appointment was in anesthesiology in a critical care. And my first career award, I was recruited as, I think, the only nephrologist ever on tenure track in anesthesiology. Can you believe that? Huh. Yes. Who were, I was intensivist in ICU. I was, and, you know, I wrote my first K and my interest was in sepsis. You know, I met my mentor, Dr. Moldaver, who was a big expert in inflammation, in the trauma and, and sepsis. He was running at that time large scale, one of the first large scale omics study called Glue Grant. I don't know if you ever heard about it. It was a multi center, a multi omics uh, mm -hmm. evaluation of the early response to trauma injury. Okay. Looking at the cytokine storm and basically gene mapping everything, right? So they have all the data. And I went to him and I said, I'm interested in AKI in, in this population. It was the first large data base that I assessed. 
And, you know, and they said, well, you know, we don't have an AKI. And I said, yeah, you do. You just don't know that. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's you know, that's the, like the typical nephrologist, but hey. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the same time, like, you know, I was doing another thing that I was interested in. I was interested in long-term outcomes of AKI. And I was always interested in large-scale analysis. Like, I wanted to analyze 10,000 patients. But at that time, there was no EPIC, remember? Everything mm-hmm. was not in electronic form. Right. So, you know, we actually manually looked at creatinine data for 10,000 patients, believe it or not, and extracted for 10,000 patients. I had a anesthesia resident who worked with me for a year, and then we did a large, you know, we did analysis. I worked together, you know, an analysis of this. And that was one of our, like, ever most cited paper ever showing the long-term outcome of the surgery being affected by AKI, rifle AKI first ever long-term outcome and uh, that was kind of movement to the large-scale data analysis still with the conventional statistical methods and sometime at that time you know i got my uh, my first uh, k award was on uh, looking at the microcirculation effect in sepsis and understanding on microcirculatory changes with a boat and biological biomarkers and imaging biomarkers we were looking at the sublingual microcirculation when I got mm-hmm. funded, I started that was more like translational research, as you can tell, right? But I continued in my data research because I was always, I was expanding on my AKI research on a large scale. You know, slowly EPIC came in. We were able to get a very large data set and start drilling more. And at that time, you maybe remember that the first time that I faced machine learning was with one of my junior faculty who was, you know, a big friend. He was doing pain research and putting his kid. He was interested and he was looking at VECA. Like that was the program for machine mm-hmm. learning. The one first one ever. And that still exists, right? And there was a book and we downloaded and, you know, we really loved it, uh, uh, the VECA. And, you know, but it was, you know, I was I, I quickly realized it was too small scale for me if I want to do large scale research on this. It, I'm a limiting factor. Like I can't do all of this, right? So I looked for partner, and you would be surprised at that time there were not many engineering faculty doing this type of research. But I found three partners early mm-hmm. on, uh, both in a system engineering and a computer science. And very early, we start asking questions whether we can use our big data sets but apply machine learning rather than, you know, rather than um, statistical learning, right? Sure. And, you know, at that time, it was random forest, super water, support vector machine, no deep learning at that time yet. Some knowledge-based graph theory, as a matter of fact, NLP, we at that time proposed NLP. Text was very hard. Most of the bag of words analysis we did, uh, we proposed in you know, a knowledge graph theory for looking at that will now become very hot topic. And I wrote my first grant to NSF at that time mm-hmm. in parallel to my K award. And that did not get funded. That was a very long time ago. There was no AI. Everybody, we called it predictive analytics at that time. So after NSF was not funded, I got, I applied for the, I don't know whether you know, but the SCCM as a data vision grant, vision grant. Remember that? Yes. Yes. Right? yes. So I applied and I got the vision grant to do this research that launched me. I launched it with my engineering group and then I launched very quickly um, 
my um, the the another internal grant, we became the pilot project of our data warehouse. And very early from the beginning, we started working with the data warehouse ID team. And then I decided when my time for my R01 came, I decided to write completely different R01 than my K. And I had an emergent meeting with my vice chair of research and my chair who, who uh, strongly discouraged me of that. They said, this is a very bad move. It's complete switch in my career. <laughs> I should never be writing the grant that has nothing to do with my K. And then I said, well, I don't know. I, I think I should be writing this. I'm really compelled. I'm really strongly. I felt very strongly about. And we wrote that my first grant ideal is grant that we pr proposed also to build real-time analytics application offline. And you know, integrate human knowledge with the. It was a very visionary grant, I have to say. And in my, I actually got that grant. It was 2013. Uh, it was wow. You got your first R1 that you wrote, like, uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yes, in AI. That was not nice. AI. It was not called AI, but it was called perioperative, right? Integrating data, algorithms, and human clinical reasoning for you know, a surgical decision, support, whatever, perioperative medicine. We were interested in predicting post-operative complications using data collected during routine clinical care, right? And both preoperatively and then take interop data, add it on the top and predict post-op. I already, we already published our models. Our, our first model, My Surgery Risk, was published in Annals of Surgery, which was pre-op model, you know, First was a get. It was a really first version of machine learning, very conservative, conventional, first gen. And then we started expanding, and I then moved to medicine, who offered me in a uh, endowed chair position. I moved back to nephrology to my home. I left anesthesia, and you know I started building my group there. And then we very quickly we moved beyond just clinical data to use uh, pervasive sensing imaging data. That was Dr. Rashidi was a junior faculty in engineering. She approached me looking for a mentor. She had some idea. I, I said, oh, why don't you try this? I have this idea for intelligent ICU concept. Together we worked on that. And then we wrote two other ones together and got both of them. And then, you know, grow the group together, joined, had more faculty joining and Really, what was the life-changing event in the University of Florida as we start growing all of this, that AI exploded, as you know. You know, we published a lot. We were we built first real-time predictive analytics system in our little basically we, we built private cloud here with our IT behind the curtain, like on the clinical operational side. We bought a server. I had an engineering team from the uh, electrical and computer science engineer who designed beautiful private cloud, very visionary at the time with the Spark and Kafka and all of the, you know, fancy tools that later on came, you know, mass produced. So we were doing really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, my career grew relatively quickly. And then, you know, at some point, uh, you know, opportunity came for this position out of nowhere. After I didn't get chosen for another position and I was like on the crossroads, what do I do? And then this came and I applied and I got the job. So it was like, okay, boom. And then in the same time, we applied to create a center, me and Parisa with a vision to recruit some other AI faculty and the University of Florida got a gift from the NVIDIA 
allowing us to recruit 100 AI faculty to University of Florida, 31 of them to Health Science Center and 25 to College of Medicine, all in wow. tenure okay. track. That's amazing, right? That tenure is amazing. Computer <laughs> scientists embedded in the clinical enterprise, right? And basic science. And, you know, fully funded, full rides, you know, amazing positions. And we recruited a lot of talent. We got a new data science building, the supercomputer. So everything kind of concentrated. And then we wrote Bridge to AI grant that you alluded that kind of was a cherry on the top of the cake for me. Really great work with a lot of people. I think it will be a great for our community. So I can stop here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Azra, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I was listening to your story and I will say that I've, I've heard a lot of stories, but this one is like almost like straight out of a movie because yeah. it, 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 it starts with this, this, the, the, these personal struggles, this, you know, growing up in this war-torn country. And, and believe me, I was born uh, when there was Yugoslavia. So I, I, I know what you're saying. And then we grew up uh, hearing all about the war, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the real people. It's people like you who mm -hmm. go through yeah. this actual struggle, not the people on, on television who are watching the war, right? So, I mean, thank you for sharing your story. Thank Absolutely you. inspirational. And, you know, someday I'll, you know, meet you in person and, and, you know, we'll probably need like a few days to talk about this because yes. this is just, there's so many pieces to this um, evolution. But um, let me, you know, just uh, jump ahead and, and sort of um, ask you uh, a, a few things that, that sort of speak to the, the clinical side and the application of what you're doing. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about healthcare, um, IT, and, and having a good system. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who are trying to do AI in, in critical care and sort of the first struggle they have is like, oh, our hospital IT doesn't really support this work and, and where do we start? And, you know, we, I, we don't have seamless flow of data. We don't have our IT uh, that's talking to our EMRs properly. Uh, what is your suggestions to them? How do you think we can improve this? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, I was just very lucky to be at a time when, you know, it was in the beginning, our, you know, IT team was committed and willing to work with us and still is. But even being so early on the frontiers, as things moved forward, it is becoming more complex because there is more data. Like we now have images, you want to text integration, waveform, even the, probably the most challenging to integrate in real time. And then you understand that really, you know, a lot of people, you know, you have this dilemma, are you doing it within the epic or are you doing it outside of the epic, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, where the, how does this intersect? You know, how does it uh, go with the, with the workflow? And how does, you know, IT buy into this? And I think that, um, uh, there is no one answer for that. I think eventually all IT will have to buy for this. Like there will be influx of all of this in the regular work for clinical workflow. To do it for the research, you know, unfortunately to do it in a real time, it's very expensive. And, uh, you know, but, but it's getting easier, right? A lot of hospitals now allow, are integrated with the Amazon cloud. 
mm-hmm. you know, so you can have an access to virtual cloud. Some of them do allow, you know, export of the data in real time. The question is how you get that data in real time, you know, who brings the stream of data to you and it requires different type of engineering. So I would say most of the time physician alone cannot do this, right? You need to have a team with with a system engineer and IT working together with you. And uh, and uh, so again, coming back to you, is it, you know, is it possible to work within the Epic? Definitely. I think the Epic has or any other EMR. I think everybody's realizing this is something that, you know, most of the companies will move from the data to algorithms, right? And we'll want to capitalize on their access to the data to create algorithms. And, uh, you know, I think physicians just need to be careful not to be just instruments there, but they're either to be key stakeholders, right? Right. Because, uh, without you know, without putting meaning and outcome to data, there is really no mean, there is no, point of algorithms we know that right so um, at this time we have built our small scale research based you know cloud but to create it for the clinical large scale it's much harder so i would say if you are doing research probably easier to start with a smaller project in conjunction with partner in it definitely cmi or crio and then somebody in engineering if they allow you Mm-hmm. If you are doing clinical application, that is harder. I think it is harder because every different organization regulates it differently. Right. In the bigger school now, they have their own. I don't know whether you have your own AI governance model governance group or no. Yeah, we, we do. And this is a key point. I, I, do you think that that model really uh, helps? And uh, what's been your experience with that kind of governance model? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I am not, I don't know yet, 100%. I feel like, you you know, so the the, the, the line get blurred, right? So right. Like most of my work was research. Like I never felt that it's ready for prime time for clinical decision yet. Because here's what we learned. We learned that you can create a very good model, right? You can deliver it at the tip of the physician and they might not use it. Like you know that, like how many of your alerts you never answer, like you just discussed <laughs> And, you know, the user, you know, the human factor engineering, integrating that, making user motivated to use it, and maybe not even um, delegating to physician to be executor of every decision. I think that requires a completely different set of studies, new studies. I don't feel that you can just bring industry-ready product and just put it out there just like that. I don't think we are there yet, but I might be too conservative. So I now see, you know, I see so many questions that remain. How do we do this safely, right? And I think the sepsis algorithm experience that Epic just dumped on everyone was like a really good one, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't do things right from the beginning, you're going to create negative image that will haunt you forever. And that's right. not what you want to do with technology that can potentially be really good for all of us if done right. So now for me, the biggest question comes when somebody bring a product, like you develop, let's say you have a learning health system, you have your research, you develop the product, you want to launch it as a research tool or as a clinical tool, or you had a QI, right? And you developed and you want to launch it. Or is it now research or is it application? But if the company comes and says, oh, we have this algorithm and we didn't, it's not FDA approved, it's, you know, 
it's just assist whatever we're just gonna bring it and put it in your clinic environment like and mm -hmm. it's gonna be like a well how kosher is that right yeah is that really like what do we know about that so i think having set of very strict guiding principles and framework like data sheets model cards you know uh ml ops documentation is super important that we create standards for that. And I know SCCM is working, it has a data science committee and I work with SCCM on creating some consensus guidelines. Chorus is gonna be proposing this, but I think this is the first step. As a sure. society, as a group, we decide what are the minimum requirements we expect for something like this. I mean, you expect for your drug, you wouldn't try every drug just like that, right? Right, right. Well, that's uh, that, Those are great points and, and especially because we work in a space in the intensive care unit that interacts so much with, with algorithms and technology that we are very liable to basically just open our doors and say, oh, you can come and try every algorithm here. Well, we should not be doing that, right? We, we oh. should be, we should have some stewardship and we yeah. should we, we should have a, a gateway that actually allows based on certain criteria. So that that's actually a nice segue into um, uh, a little bit about you know you you told us about your own journey, but um, you know a lot of times people ask me they say oh, I want to learn how to do AI, um, but I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. Where did you did you actually how did you learn it? What, what tools did you use? Well, I will self-learn. I learned everything on myself. I mean, I also have a master's science, you know, that was you know, on the, at that time there was no AI, but it was very heavy in stats. Right. And then I learned on my own coding and all of that starting from there. And then, you know, honestly, you know, when, when my operation expanded, uh -huh. I have so many collaborators. I don't need to do every, like, I mean, just like when I, okay, I'm nephrologist, sure. intensive, but I still do GI. Like I call GI him on. I'm not, trying to solve every single problem because yes, I'm a doctor, I'm internist, but I call hemog. Right. At some point, like I can do only so much. So I think clearing partnership is very important. But one of the things, let me talk a little bit about that because that was a big passion on mine, right? I think physician scientist is endangered species, you know that. Mm -hmm. But it's a critical for healthcare. We mm -hmm. don't we cannot survive unless we build a robust physician scientist workforce and maintain it. It's, we have to have them. We have to have them. And both for clinical, translational, but also the, what is emerging data and AI research, right? Right. Critical. So for that type of scientists, and I, I think that actually this is a very lucrative and very kind of exciting field for a physician to enter as a research career because it has a quick learning curve especially with the movement towards large language model or English, it's really more about prompt engineering and it's going to become really interaction with the machine, a lot of co-pilot help. I think what we are creating here, and that's one of the program that I started as a you know a senior associate dean for research and also chorus, I call it with Parisa Workforce Development, is to create this, I call it AI Passport for Healthcare. It's, a, it's an upskilling program. It's a research training, a workforce development program for healthcare workers for AI. So that means that we need to accept that everybody will need to be at minimum literate, but some people will might need to rise to the level of mastery, right? But there has to be every level. So you can start from literacy to mastery. 
And we want to create program that it will be worse, that will be agile, more, you know, mic, you know, agile and personalized bespoke. Some people call it bespoke, meaning very personalized to the trainee's needs. Digestible in small chunks. You know that doctors don't have time to just sit for hours. It's impossible. You know, digestible in small chunks can be done as a team science and can be done on a speedy scale. So that's what we are working on in course creating around our data set learning modules and then micro micro learning experiential kind of learning modules for the coding small books that you can practice you know like a notebooks and uh, and then also the university of florida we have a similar program we just finished the first ai for health cme conference for physician that was fantastic in disney yeah mm-hmm. two days prequel was a uh, two days uh, AI bootcamp. We had two tracks, one for the beginners and one for advanced with NVIDIA. NVIDIA is our partner. If you are very advanced, we were training everybody on Monai platform. That was like for $200, you get $2,000 for training for NVIDIA. That's amazing deal. So we, you know, invited, we had the grants for the students to come. We invited community. Not many people knew, but I think may, more will know. Our, our idea is that kind of start bringing ICU data together to this and open this to physicians as both online, you know, massive open online course maybe at one day and then also as the you know, hands-on training. And we have some plans to work with SCCM for Datatone mm-hmm. for the two years from now. Hopefully that will be in Orlando, I think. 2024 is in Orlando. So that's perfect. So we can organize Datatone here with SCCM. And then so we can, we're going to create this pockets of opportunities that physicians can do distant learning that can be even hands-on. That's the idea. Wow. Azra, this is all music to my ears. And I will say, um, you know, as the incoming chair of SCCM Discovery, I, I'm I'm very much engaged in this and I uh, we'll, we'll talk about this offline. But, you know, I, I, I'm so excited that there's people like you who literally are, are giving their heart and soul to, to not just, you know, doing your own trials and work, but also making sure that we educate and, and inspire a generation of people who, who want to uh, work in this space. So, yeah, th- this is this is just this is just great stuff. Um, just to make a parallel, if you don't mind, Ashish, like I yes. always tell, like we need to remember days when electronic health records came, right? Like we were kind of resistant. We didn't really know what to expect. Mm-hmm. In many ways, this was just, pushed on us, right? right? It was dumped in many ways. The product, and probably if we knew more, like today, we would probably do this differently, right? We Absolutely. We would probably develop it differently. We would ask different questions, but we didn't know what questions to ask. We cannot, as a profession, be in that position today. We need to write, we need to ask right questions. We need to stand in the front line as a key stakeholder. We cannot deploy this without be without us being a key stakeholder. And I think for me, and I got some critiques on Twitter for that, is that I said, this is how I think about this. Like when patient comes to hospital, he comes for a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. He comes to physician and create some contract of trust, right? I mean, you tell your secrets that you tell to no one else. You expose your vulnerability. As an ICU doctor, you know what it means, Right. You are, you are, you are responsible for human life. That 
ultimate all vulnerability is given to you as a responsibility and gift and respect. It's an honor, right? It's mm-hmm. an honor. Mm-hmm. It's an honorable call. So when you go there, you represent your patients, even when you talk about bringing AI, you know, you need to always stand and represent that and protect that contract that you have with the patient, that trustworthy contract. You That's why we need to be at the front line. Like, it cannot be just something that you don't feel comfortable because, right? Do you agree with that? You, you wouldn't No, give, absolutely. You wouldn't give your patient something without consent that is exper- exper- experimental. You wouldn't uh, do something without completely transparently explaining in depth what it means. You know, there is a way how we do things. So I think this is why it's important, ICU particularly, because I think ICU will be easy first frontier for deployment of this technology because we are wired, right? We have a lot of data. It's already there. Every company that does monitor is developing algorithms. Everybody wants to have some algorithms and we need to stand there as an informed key stakeholders, I think. Excellent. On that note, uh, I'm going to ask you about your um, favorite, most exciting projects. I know you've got a lot going on. You know, um, we want to also talk about Chorus. Uh, so maybe you can tell us about Chorus and, and then also tell us about other exciting work that's going on. Yeah. So Chorus uh, is a the, the bridge to AI was a large scale uh, common fund NIH initiative to create framework for equitable, ethically sourced AI data sets and ecosystem around that. Meaning they wanted to create framework that will say, this is how AI ML will be deployed in medicine. So there were, you know, there were one center, AI, Bridge AI Center, and then there are four data generation projects the first launched. And each one of them was organized around data set with six modules. Each one module was about Teaming, one was about ethics, one module was about standards, then one about tools, and one about workforce development. Like, idea, like, you know, this ecosystem, right? It's not just data. So, Chorus was one of the four data generation projects that was based on human, on electronic health records, and in hospital data. One project is about cell based data, one project is about voice of the patients. And then one project was about uh, diabetes patients, you know, that are doing variables. And we were the large scale critical care data sets that will provide 100,000 complete medical records with images, text, and waveform for 100,000 ICU patients that will be fully phenotyped with outcomes and open and will have all these standardized with OMOP and other standards, every aspect with the tools that will be free for access in the cloud and then all these training modules. It's really fantastic, right? 15 centers, 10 MPIs, really diverse group of people. Uh, super excited to work together with NIH on this. And we expect next year to launch first pilot data set that will be uh, you know, available and then several tools as standards. So it's a really big deal. I think that uh, you know it's hard, but I think it's going to change uh, lot for our community we do have a mimic and if you cannot believe the mimic is probably the most used data set uh-huh. not just in a icu everywhere now mimic is one center right think about now 15 geographically diverse centers that can be enriched and then also enhanced and once this kind of framework is developed it can easily become something like you know ai 
empowered arts net, like ICU net, right? Large yeah. scale. You know, you you know, leave it for imagination. What can we do? Oh, absolutely. And and you know, like you said it, right? So for years we've relied on Mimic, and Mimic is a great data set. But you know, it's only one center, and you know, I mean, it's 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 actually a sad realization that. Uh, the United States doesn't really have a well-organized ICU data set that represents all parts of the country and all hospital types. And and and, and I'm, my hope is that by doing uh, projects like Chorus, we can, we can build those data sets and we can actually build an AI network through those data sets. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. So what happens after Chorus? Like, so, you know, right now you have 12 PIs or 10 co-PIs on this and 10 different centers, but there's hundreds and thousands of, you know, uh, institutions and, and, and people who want to collaborate with you. Yeah. Uh, is, is there a plan of growing Chorus to, to something bigger absolutely. in the next 10 years? Oh, absolutely. We already are thinking about sustainability Talking with NIH, you know, I think, you know, we are very much building modular platform that can actually, you know, import other data, bring others on board. Once the main framework, like we need to bring the found, build the foundation. It's a very expensive project, you know, and there is a lot of work done, like for people not, you know, it, it requires a lot of work that not always being paid for fully, right? There is a lot of stuff that we need to supplement and, to believe, but I think it's important foundation. You know, it's really important for us to build foundation for this and think about how we create sustainability and growth plan, because each one of us wants this to become larger scale, open for the community, and remain public, and maybe look for collaboration with industry and so on. But completely debiased, ethically sourced place where we can actually do some cool stuff and really uh, test algorithms even before they go to patients right mm -hmm. so i'm really excited about that and uh, you know i hope that um, by the time we have our data tone with sccm since you're on a, a on a discovery net we will create opportunities to create some joint project and have some ideas who can be a partner in creating sustainability pathway wonderful wonderful because you know the real sense of this is that we have to make this accessible to everyone uh, yes. uh right not just people who, who who are part of the initial grant but also everyone else who wants to collaborate and who oh, wants absolutely. to contribute and it will be a public data set just oh wow yeah okay. it, is, it is not going to be a closed one wow that's that's great um as in the last two minutes or so do, do you have any other message for our uh listeners no, I just want to say thank you, Ashish. Great that you are bringing this awareness. And, you know, I'm always available on Twitter. I uh -huh. like to be on a Twitter uh, in non-controversial, very scientific. I just love to talk about AI. Uh, feel free to reach on Twitter. Feel free to, uh, you know, see me at SCCM. And uh, always also email me. We are always looking to collaborate. We have a beautiful, I mean, one of the most beautiful data science building that will be open in August with the most powerful computer. We will be having visiting professorships to our data science. We're gonna, we can host you for a week if you want to do projects with us. We can uh, let you enjoy the resources of the University of Florida and become our partner. Wow, great. Please this is... Share my link to our center and also to the, you know, a couple other resources so you know we are always looking for collaborators 
Excellent, excellent. This is this is wonderful, Azra, and uh, congratulations once more on all that you are doing. You, you know, one of my uh, chairs um, used to ask me, uh, uh, "Are you going to leave a dent in the universe uh, during your career?" <laughs> You are certainly one who's going to leave a dent in the universe. So I, I, I applaud you for all oh, of this. Thank you. That's so sweet to say. <laughs> Ask my kids. I have four children. <laughs> okay, now now I'm going to applaud you even more. But I have because I have three children, and so if you can do this with four children, you're yeah. already one step ahead of me. So. <laughs> So anyway, you know, with, with that, we're going to come to the end of another edition of BrainX Talks. For all those who are interested, um, again, Dr. Bihorak just said that she's available on Twitter. So please connect with her. For all those who are interested to connect with the BrainX group, please connect, come over to our LinkedIn page to be a part of the BrainX community. It costs you nothing and adds so much more to what you can learn and do with big data analytics. We're also on brainxai.org for more information. Um, and in the world of collaboration, like Dr. Bihorak says, you know, we're all open for collaboration. So we would love to hear from you. Until next time, uh, stay safe, everyone, and take care of yourself.